Amen. Friends, would you pray with me one more time? Father, in the shifting sands of this world, we need a solid rock. We need every promise from your word to stand on. And the only way we can know and stand on those promises is by reading your word, by hearing your word, by meditating on your word day and night, which you say if we do, we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Our leaves will not wither and we will bear much fruit. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we meditate on your word, as we read it and hear it together, as I proclaim it, would you help us by your Spirit? Would you nourish our souls? Would you solidify our hope in your promises? Would you help us learn what it means to walk wisely in this world under the sun? We pray that you'd help us with food that is needful this morning. I pray that you would work in each heart in here to do what you intend to accomplish by your spirit. So would you help us now, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. If you have a Bible this morning with you, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Or in your scripture journals, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. This morning, as we go to God's Word, we come again to another text in Ecclesiastes that is challenging. I think I've said this quite a few times the last couple messages, especially as I've prepared or as I've talked with various people about them, that now we're coming to one of the hardest passages to interpret in Ecclesiastes. And yet here we are again at another difficult passage. We're really in the weeds now. And this passage is no exception to those things. As I reflected on this passage, a couple of things stood out that I think will help anchor us as we approach it this morning. One of those is that this passage is bookended by a reflection on the wise. Verse 1 of chapter 8 starts out, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing. And then in verse 17... He revisits the wisdom, verse 16 and 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth. And he reflects on the limits of wisdom and what wisdom cannot find out. This reminds me of what we saw last week even. That wisdom is both good and necessary. Wisdom gives strength to those who pursue it. And yet wisdom is limited. Remember from last week, chapter 7. Verses 23 and 24 especially. All this I've tested by wisdom, the preacher says. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Remember last week we saw that life is full of perplexing questions like why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Why is this paradox existing in our world? Why does it not work out like it looks like God says it should? And we said, don't pursue wisdom as a means to try to understand everything and control everything. 
because it's good, but limited. This whole section of Ecclesiastes is governed by this question, like, how should I live now in light of all these things we've seen under the sun? Remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, he asks this question, the preacher does. Ecclesiastes six, twelve, he says, who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who knows what is good to do when life doesn't make sense? That's what the preacher's dealing with. And so, in many ways, what he's dealing with this week in chapter 8 is the same thing he was dealing with in chapter 7, and the same thing he started asking about and thinking about in chapter 6. But now he's going to take this question of how do we live under the sun? What is wise to do? Who knows what is good for a man to do? And he's going to apply it to a specific situation, a specific case study, if you will, and say... What should we do in this particular area of life? To help us think about chapter 8, as we read it, I want you to think about this question. What theme unites chapter 8? In other words, there's a bunch of different parts, and the preacher seems to be going a lot of different directions, but I think there's a particular theme uniting this chapter. And so as we read chapter 8, listen and see if you can pick up on what you think the theme might be. What is this test case that the preacher is thinking about as he preaches this sermon? Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we're covering the whole chapter today. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. Verse 1, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also his vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, 
Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. As we think about what is the theme uniting these verses, especially what is the theme uniting the section inside of the bookends, verses 2 through verse 15, I believe that the theme that unites all of this is the theme of living wisely in a wicked culture. Living wisely in a wicked culture. In other words, the question that the preacher is trying to answer is given my culture's wickedness, especially the wickedness of the rulers, how should I live? What does wise living look like in light of this wickedness? The reason I think this is the theme that unites all of this text is because of the preacher's reflections in a couple places. Look at verses 3 and 4, for instance. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. And in verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? You've got a king who is in power and is supreme over everything. And what does the preacher say about that power? Verse 9, he says that he reflected on all these things. All this I observed, he says in verse 9, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So he's talking about a particular ruler, a particular person in power, having power and using it for ill, using it for hurting, using it to do wickedness. Then in verses 10 to 14, he talks a lot more about wickedness, doesn't he? He says that in this culture, verse 10, the wicked would go in and out of the holy place, back and forth to church go the wicked. And what happens? They're praised for their wickedness. They're in a culture that looks at them and says, that wickedness is good. That wickedness is praiseworthy. The preacher says it ought not to be so. They're in a culture where they say, God doesn't punish evil. And so because God doesn't punish evil in verse 11, or at least it looks like it to them, the hearts of the men are fully given over to wickedness. That's why I say the theme uniting this passage is living wisely in a wicked culture. Because it's not just the king, though the king shapes the culture. The rulers and those in authority shape the culture, shape society, and society reflects what its leaders shape. In this text, when I'm talking about a wicked culture, I'm talking about a shared way of thinking, about how to live and what is important. And the shared way of thinking and how to live and what is important, all of that is shaped by wickedness when this preacher looks out at the culture he's a part of. I think this is pertinent for us to ask these questions. How do we live in a culture that praises wickedness? How do we live in a culture where those in authority have power to hurt us and use it to hurt us? You may think this is far off, but it is not. We live in a culture that praises wickedness. This is most abundantly clear in the sexual revolution and all, of that, all that that entails. We live in a culture that praises deviant sexuality. We live in a culture that praises confusion about male and femaleness. We live in a culture that praises transgressive sexuality. Sexuality that transgresses God's law or that violates his law. We live in a culture that praises wickedness. 
And we live in a culture where those in power will use their power to harm those who refuse to praise the wickedness of the culture. In other words, those in power will use that power to cause harm to God's people who reject wickedness. The sexual revolution isn't the only example of wickedness in our culture, but I use that one because it's clear and easy to see. Contrary to God's law, they praise wickedness. They don't even try to be, have personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. They praise rejection and rebellion. You may think, yeah, we need this now because our culture is especially wicked. But this is the reality of all human cultures under the sun since the fall of Adam and Eve. Remember in Paul, when he writes to the church at Philippi, what does he say about their generation? He says it's crooked and twisted. It's a wicked generation, and he's trying to teach them how to live in a wicked generation wisely. Over and over and over throughout the scriptures, the surrounding culture around God's people is fallen and praises wickedness. Until Christ returns, we are going to need to know how to live wisely in a wicked culture. And so the preacher, preaching to his people thousands of years ago, also preaches to us this morning on how to live wisely in that wicked culture. Because of the challenges of interpreting this text and because of the challenges of some of even the language, like for example, if you look in your Bible, if you have an ESV, you may have a footnote or you may have a different translation. In verse 3, excuse me, verse 2, the second half of verse 2, Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The ESV has a little footnote that says, or because of your oath to God. And the Hebrew is ambiguous. It could be because of your oath to God. It could be because of God's oath to him. There's plenty of places like that in this text where it's somewhat ambiguous what the preacher is saying. It was clear to his people that he was preaching to, but it is less clear to us separated by millennia. And so... We want to make sure that as we're thinking through this text and as we're reading it, we're faithful to say what this preacher says and to not go beyond that. We want to do due diligence to do well, to be faithful to God's word and have that teach us how to live wisely in a wicked culture and not our own predispositions. So friends, let's hear this morning what the preacher has to say about how we live wisely in this wicked culture. Starting with Verses 2 to 6. I'm going to read those again for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Because of some of the difficulties of understanding what the preacher is talking about here, we get to keep the king's command, but everything else is a little bit, what does he mean by do not be hasty to go from his presence and those kind of things? I think the paraphrase of the New Living Translation is helpful for us. So I'm going to, keeping the ESV in mind, I'm going to read that for us. Listen to how the New Living Translation puts it. I think it is helpful. Obey the king, since you vowed to God that you would. I think that's a good translation. 
since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty, and don't stand with those who plot evil. For the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right. For there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. I think that's a helpful paraphrase of what the preacher is saying in this text. What he's saying is that to live wisely in a wicked culture, we must strive to obey legitimate authority. That's the first thing he's saying in this text. To live wisely in a wicked culture, we must strive to obey legitimate authority. I want to think about that in two ways. Striving to obey. What do I mean by that? Striving to obey. The pattern in scripture and the pattern that the preacher picks up on here is that we have a predisposition towards obedience to authority. Even towards obedience to wicked authorities. Think about the New Testament's witness to this. Places like Romans 13, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The Roman authorities that Paul was writing to the church in Rome to obey were not godly authorities. Many of them were wicked, wicked men using their authority to hurt others. And yet Paul said, be subject to these governing authorities. Or Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, which we talked about when we were going through the book of Titus. Remind them, Paul says, to Titus about the church at Ephesus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writing to the elect exiles, the Jews, Christians, who were distributed throughout the empire in various places, living in pagan cultures that were wicked and in rebellion against God. And he writes to them, be subject, 1 Peter 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter was writing to these believers, telling them that they were to have this striving to be obedient to the authorities over them, whether good or whether wicked. There is a trend in Scripture towards obedience to authority. And yet, the reason I phrased it the way I did, the preacher's summary of what he's saying, is he's saying, keep this command of the king, but it's not absolute. Striving to obey legitimate authority is necessary for living wisely in a wicked world. In other words, what we see all through Scripture is a pattern of certain times and exceptions for when God's people obeyed the rulers. Take, for example, Joshua 2, when Joshua sends spies into the promised land to see what's going on there, especially in the city of Jericho. The spies come 
And the king of Jericho hears about them and is trying to find them, to kill them. And Rahab, the prostitute, hides them. And she lies to the king about their whereabouts. And scripture seems to commend this as an act of faith. Or take, for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, who are told that if they do not bow down to this golden idol, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. They don't respond that they must obey authority. They respond and say, we cannot worship false gods. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and then there's four people in there with them. How exciting. They are commended for their refusal to obey even legitimate authority. Or excuse me, illegitimate authority. Take, for example, the disciples in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, the disciples have been arrested by the Jewish leaders of the day. And here's what Luke records for us. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You must judge if it's right to do. We know that we have to speak of what we've seen and heard. We have to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you tell us not to. A little bit later in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, we hear this. When they brought them before them and set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. So we see that there is some need to define what is legitimate and illegitimate authority, right? Obedience to God is a key limit to worldly authority. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey what God tells us to, which is to worship him and him alone. We must obey what God tells us to, which is to witness to what we have seen in Jesus Christ. The challenge for us in living wisely in light of this is that we can't just say something as simple as, if scripture does not forbid this, then it's okay. And if scripture does forbid it, then I can't do it. It takes more wisdom than that because we haven't been given a list of do's and don'ts for every circumstance that we will ever encounter. We've been given God's law in the scriptures, and we've been given the wisdom from God, but authority, and whether it is legitimate, is more complex than that. For example, the preacher says, keep the king's command. But which king? Clearly the one that the person he's talking to is subject to, right? He would not say, keep a foreign king's command. So the scope of authority is limited naturally, To the king that is over you and not the king that is over others. The scope of authority is limited in other ways that I don't want to, I have time really to go into this morning. A key principle though to help us understand where and when we submit is to remember that Christ is always Lord over all authorities. In Colossians chapter 1, 
Paul writes that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then what does he list? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is head over all. And therefore, all of our submission to authority, all of our striving to obey authority, all of our understanding of whether an authority is uh, legitimate or illegitimate is tied to Christ as Lord over all. This pattern of obedience to legitimate authority is played out in the life of Daniel in Babylon. If we think about his life for a minute, in Daniel 6, before he's cast into the lion's den, these guys plot against him. And we read this in Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, Daniel, living in a foreign kingdom under a wicked ruler that had taken Israel and pulled them out of the promised land and brought them into exile as God's judgment on them, what did he do? He strove to obey the legitimate authority. Those who sought to find a cause against him legitimately could not find one. He was faithful. But... When they tricked the king into making an illegitimate rule that violated God's command, he responded very differently. They tricked this king into signing a rule that said no one for 30 days could pray or make a petition to any god or anyone else except the emperor. And here's what Daniel did when he heard about that. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He did what he'd always done, which is pray to his God in obedience to the Lord God, in submission to the kingship of God. Daniel violated the king's order. He did not obey. So we see that much wisdom is needed to know how to strive to be obedient. We are called to do this, to have a heart posture that is towards obedience. And I think for us, for me, and I imagine for many of you, knowing you like I do, our hearts are not necessarily inclined to be, inclined to be obedient to authority. We live in a culture that celebrates individualism. We live in a culture that celebrates kind of the rebel without a cause attitude. And some of that permeates us. And we chafe under authority, especially if it's wicked authority. And we think, maybe I can just work my way around, you know, and use the reason that this is wicked authority to not listen and to not obey, to not strive to be obedient. That's where I'm tempted towards, and I think many of you are as well. And I want to caution us. The scriptures call us to submit, to strive to be obedient to legitimate authority, even when that authority is wicked. And that submission to that authority is a countercultural testimony to the goodness of God's authority. See, we live in a world that doesn't want to submit to authority that it doesn't agree with, right? Right? Or that it feels is wronging them somehow. 
And yet, when we, in obedience to our God, because we trust Him, submit to worldly authorities, even those that are wicked, to the extent that we can in obedience to God, we are witnessing to the goodness and sovereignty of God. This is very difficult to do. The preacher recognizes this, right? In verses 3 and 4, when he says, Be not hasty to go from His presence. But do not take your stand in an evil cause. Don't shirk your duties, but don't participate in evil. How do you divide that line when you serve a king whose rule is absolute? That's very, very difficult. It is hard to live this way in our culture. It is hard, but wisdom charts a path forward for us. The preacher says that in verses 5 and 6. He says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. We read about in Ecclesiastes 3 that there's a time for everything under the sun, and that all these times have been set by God. Living wisely in a wicked culture where the rulers are wicked, Trying to submit as we ought takes this kind of wisdom. It takes the kind of wisdom that Jesus called his disciples to in Matthew 10. He said this in Matthew 10, 16 to 20. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocence as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and to flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious for how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In other words, what we need is not a list of everything that the government can tell us to do and everything that the government can't tell us to do. What we need is the word of God dwelling richly in us, guiding us by his spirit to speak wisely and to walk wisely in all circumstances. The preacher points to where our hope is found in this when he transitions to thinking about wickedness and righteousness and the fear of the Lord. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of this kind of wisdom. And that's how we walk wisely And strive to be obedient as much as we can. See, we need to learn in this culture to fear God more than powerful people. To fear God more than powerful people. This is what the preacher gets at. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 7. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. See, we are tempted, the preacher says, 
to fear these powerful people because they have power over us to do us harm. This is true especially of kings who can do whatever they want, right? The preacher says, the king, who can say to him, why do you do this? And so he knows that if you're in the presence of someone this powerful who has power over you, it's very dangerous. You could lose your head. You could be executed speedily. And yet, walking in this world, in this wicked culture, walking wisely requires that we fear God. And so the preacher shows us the wicked are not as powerful as you think they are. Their power seems supreme. He says in verse 4, right, these kings are supreme. But what does he say in verses 7 through 8? They don't know what's going to come next. They don't have power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. They don't decide those things, even though they're supreme in everything in the land. They're the most powerful people you can imagine, and yet they cannot control death. They don't have power, he says, to escape the course of life or to get discharged from war. I think that's what he's talking about there. They don't have power for their wickedness to deliver them, ultimately to deliver them from death. They don't have as much power as you think. And so esteem them rightly, the preacher is saying. They're not as praiseworthy as they appear either. Though the culture praises them as they go in and out, even from church. In verse 10, though the culture says they are praiseworthy, they are not as praiseworthy as you think. Because it will not be well with them, he says in verse 13. Even though it looks like it's going well, even though it looks like God is not punishing them, even though it looks like they do evil a hundred times and yet prolong their life, the preacher says, I know it will not be well with them. Why? Look at verse 10. Where does he start verse 10? He says, then I saw the wicked buried. See, this is the ultimate limiter on wickedness. Death. The wicked will one day die. All wicked rulers, all wicked powers, all wicked authorities will one day die. Many have throughout history reigns of terror who the people living under them thought this will surely never end. They're dead. They're gone. The wicked are buried. Powerful people still die. The preacher calls us to remember this as we consider them. And we consider what they can do to us to remember that they still die, just like all of us. That they are not God. We are tempted to think of the wicked and powerful as though they are God. And the preacher says, they are not God. We are called to fear God because only He is all-powerful. Only He has power over the day of death. Only He can deliver, truly. Only God can give lasting peace. Only God is supreme. He, in fact, is the one who tears down kings and sets up kings. Daniel says this in chapter 2. He reflects on God and he says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. 
In Proverbs, we learn that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He is ultimately not in charge. God is. He is ultimately not supremely powerful. God is. Only God is truly powerful. Only God is truly praiseworthy. And therefore, we must learn to fear God more than powerful people. That's what he says in verse 12, right? Though the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. We must learn to fear God like this. We live in a culture that thinks God doesn't care about evil. That it misunderstands God's patience with sinners as lack of care or lack of ability to do anything about evil and wickedness. And that just causes our culture to throw themselves into more and more wickedness. It is countercultural for us to fear God instead of powerful people because we are inclined naturally, and those around us are inclined naturally to fear those who are powerful. And to think that maybe by conceding myself to wickedness, I can get on their good side. God's people throughout history have testified, though the cost is high, that it will go well with those who fear God. And it will go poorly for the wicked. One way we can show this fear of God is not by cowering before him, but by actually rejoicing and enjoying his good gifts. It's the last place the preacher goes. We're going to talk more about that next week because he goes there in chapter 9 too. But I want to briefly say a few things about verse 15 because I think this is so important. The preacher says, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In order for us to live wisely in a wicked culture, we have to strive to obey God. We have to strive to obey legitimate rulers to the extent that we can. We have to learn to fear God more than the powerful people around us. And ultimately, we need to fully enjoy God's gifts. There's many ways to do this, but the preacher mentions eating and drinking. And so I want to think about those for a second. In the midst of a wicked culture that is in rebellion against God and that has power over you to do harm, the preacher says, enjoy God's good gifts. Give thanks for daily bread. Jesus talks about this in Matthew when he gives us the Lord's prayer that asks for daily bread and gives thanks for it. He reflects on this as he thinks about and exhorts the disciples to consider the lilies of the field, to consider the birds of the air, to consider God's good provision for them and respond in thanksgiving. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. If you respond to the wickedness of the culture around you, And striving to live a good and godly life in the midst of that. And the the difficulty and the hardness of that. With enjoying and giving thanks. That is an incredibly countercultural testimony to the goodness of God. Not only that though. Don't just give thanks for a little bit of bread and water. The preacher says eat and drink. Enjoy these good gifts he says. 
I commend joy, he says. Eat, drink, and be joyful. In other words, fully enjoy God's gifts, not just by giving thanks for daily bread, but by throwing feasts. Enjoy God's good gifts by feasting together. In the face of a wicked culture full of powerful people able to do you harm, break bread together and rejoice. Eat, drink, and be merry, friends. That's what we're called to do as God's people because we have a joy and a happiness and a hope that cannot be taken away. We long for a feast to come. And when we feast together this way, we show the culture around us the truth that it doesn't require that you have power to be happy. It doesn't require that you're able to live amongst people that think and do just like you. It doesn't require that you're able to get your own way in order to be satisfied. It doesn't require that because we have promises from our good God that sustain us even in the midst of suffering. That allow God's people to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When we do this, we show our culture that God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? So I exhort you, I exhort us to feast like this because Jesus, our King, did that very same thing. In the midst of a wicked culture, full of people in rebellion against God and full of a religious authority that had power over him to do his hurt, what did he do? He feasted with sinners and tax collectors. And then, on the week when he was going to be betrayed, what did he do? He feasted with his disciples, even Judas, who was going to betray him. As we were going through John, we saw Jesus handed a piece of bread dipped in wine to Judas. That was a sign of honoring Judas and reaching out to him and saying, repent and believe. Judas rejected that, but Jesus still feasted in hope. Why did he do this? Why did he eat, drink, and be merry with his disciples in the midst of this wickedness? He did it for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews talks about that in chapter 12, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He did this because of the joy set before him. And we too can learn to fully enjoy God's gifts, even in the midst of a wicked culture, because of the joy set before us. You see, King Jesus is the answer to all of the who questions in chapter 8. Who is like the wise? Christ the King. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Christ the King. Who can say to a king, what are you doing? Only Christ the King. Who can tell us what is to come? Only Christ the King. Who has the power over the spirit and death? Christ the King. Who can deliver us from death? Christ the King. Who can tell us what is good for us to do in our many days under the sun? Only Christ the King can. Only he has the power to do that. So friends, in the wicked culture that we live in, learn to live wisely. Strive to obey legitimate authorities because we have a true authority, a true king, Jesus Christ. Strive to fear God more than powerful people because ultimately Christ the king is powerful over all. 
Strive to fully enjoy God's good gifts because ultimately you have been given the best gift of all, Christ the King. Let's pray. King Jesus, what a precious reality that you are king so that even as we are surrounded by wickedness and by those who have power over us to our hurt, we know that nothing happens outside of your rule and authority. We know that you are head over all. We know that you alone are worthy of praise. And we know that you call us to come feast with you. And that you tell us that there will one day be a feast that we enjoy. And so Jesus, help us to cling to those promises. Help us to learn to walk out this very hard thing. Of living wisely in a wicked culture. Help us to learn hearts that are inclined towards submission. To authority that you have put in place. Help us learn to not evaluate the world around us by what we see, by, but, but evaluate it by what we know to be true about you and to learn to fear you. Uh, help us learn to enjoy all of these good gifts that you have given us. Thank you for daily bread and daily mercies without which we would be completely lost. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us do these things now as we go to your table and receive this good gift that you've given us. We pray in your name. Amen.